Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by curator and film historian Alicia Fletcher and Andrea Subasetti, the executive editor of Rue Morgue and co-host of the Faculty of Horror podcast. From self-decapitating Tony Collette in Hereditary to Suspiria's blood-soaked witch orgy, it's safe to say that witches are back in mainstream film in a big way. But this is in no way a new pop culture phenomenon. Heck, it's not even the first appearance of witch orgies on film. The late 60s and early 70s turned out dozens of movies that dipped their toes into the occult to make a buck, either through exploitation movies and excuses to see numerous sky-clad women frolic, or through genuine attempts at making socially relevant commentary. Both the movies we're looking at today fall into the second category, but a little bit into the first, and are very effective, and are part of a specific time in UK film history where there were a ton of these movies. But before we get into that, let's look at what was going on with witchcraft in film that led us into the early 70s. Andrea, this ties in very nicely to a recent Rue Morgue issue on folk horror. So what should we be looking for? Thank you, Becky. And uh, thank you, Hollywood Suite, for having me once again. And uh, and thanks for that plug on the new Rue Morgue issue. I'm really excited to bring it to horror fans because I feel like folk horror is just, it's one of those, uh, it's one of those sub genres that people have a really hard time defining uh, short of just kind of generally saying, yeah, you know, it's like the Wicker Man and it's like blood on Satan's claw. But, you know, it has its roots way deeper than that. And so the launch of uh, Severin's giant documentary box set and the new issue, I mean, witches are hot right now. They are yeah. trendy, and it stands to reason that folk horror is having a moment, as it is a genre that looks back on folklore from pre-industrial times, and it casts those anxieties in a new light. And they don't all do it the same way. Some are more subversive than others, in that they problematize traditional ways of life, while others point the finger at the so-called progress and civilization that we've made since then. And in the case of witchcraft, like we're almost always dealing with feminine power and persecution. And then when we're talking about the 70s, this is when the women's lib movement was mainstream enough to be openly mocked. Those anxieties are revisited in particular ways, especially in both these films that we're going to discuss. Now, moving into the film aspect of it, because then people would want to put these on film. Like it's in, the American is very interesting in it being different from the British because the American draws very much from the Salem point of view mm -hmm. and the like we persecuted them. And then you have the British point of view where it's like this is kind of sexy and fun, but they're evil at the same time. It's very interesting, the two different ways it's approached. It is very interesting. And I think colonialism definitely factors into the story. Um, Severin's box set has, I, I think it's no short of 25 different folk horror films called from 
all over the world as far back as like, you know, the 20s, the dawn of uh, of cinema. So I think we do tend to think of it as a British and then American thing, but it's all over the map. And it's interesting that we're even seeing modern adaptations of this. I quite enjoyed the 2016 The Love Witch, which oh, very so much good. draws from this period. It's so much fun. And that's when I'm, if you people haven't seen it, go pull that one up. It looks like it could have come out of this Forgive era. me, like, Becky, only because this came up in the last episode, but you do realize that The Love Witch <laughs> is a play on donkey skin, right? I, okay, I'm going to watch donkey <laughs> skin. You is trying to, to convince Becky to watch donkey skin. The Jacques Demy, it's, yeah, Catherine Deneuve uh, bonkers musical. So uh, you're going to have to watch You didn't it. tell me it was a musical. I mean, there's oh full okay. scenes recreated in The Love Witch. There's a shot for shot donkey skin. Okay, I will get into it. I promise I'll watch donkey skin. All right. So one of the most controversial entries in the witchcraft genre of filmography is the very much banned the Devils. And this paired Oliver Reed with fellow hard drinker and filmmaker Ken Russell. Uh, we talked about Russell in season two on our episode that covered the Who's Tommy and Litzdomania. And one of my favorite quotes from Russell about his work with Oliver Reed was, you do not say cut to Oliver. You say, have you any more to say, Oliver? Are you done, Oliver? May we end the scene, Oliver? Now, obviously, they had an excellent working relationship. And The Devils is one of the most banned movies Ever. So much so that Italy threatened Oliver Reed and his co-star Vanessa Redgrave with three years of imprisonment if they entered the country because of their appearance in it. But the Italian National Syndicate of Film Journalists awarded it the Silver Ribbon for Best Foreign Film in 1972. Go figure. But here is your warning. This is a brutal movie, and as we've discussed before, Ken Russell wasn't exactly known for safe sets. Please refer to Roger Daltrey referring to himself as the world's most expensive prop after being nearly drowned and tossed around like a rag doll take after take in Litzdomania. And this time, it's nun orgies. But it's also devout Catholic Ken Russell taking down religion and power. Okay, Andrea, The Devils, what's our plot summary on this one? So The Devils concerns a moment in history where uh, the Catholic Church was really desperately taking over Protestantism. And so we have Oliver Reed playing Father Grandier, who is kind of this, he's a political figure, but he is also a member of the clergy. And he is the leader of this town that has walls around it. And these walls tend to signify his resistance to the Catholic Church domination. Now, um, Father Grandier is um, a philanderer, let's lusty. say. Would you say he's lusty? <laughs> I would say that he's lusty. And uh, and yeah, he uh, he acts on his lust in more ways than one. He has a, a romantic love affair and a secret marriage with a local woman, as well as impregnating uh, a member of the aristocracy and then abandoning her. So, so there's some scandal afoot. And meanwhile, the nunnery nearby, and I love how this film takes pains to depict the nunnery as this really sterile, uh, loveless environment. This isn't a place of worship. It's almost clinical. And it's very it's the clearly... Set that, the set's designed around the film Metropolis, too. Like, if you look at the scene that's really famous of the workers kind of marching, Derek German, who did the sets, like, built, recreated Metropolis to, like, be this nunnery, which looks like no nunnery in existence. And it is so effective. It's like they're imprisoned, essentially. Well, yeah, exactly. Like these women were, you know, you don't get the sense that these are brides of Christ, that these are especially uh, spiritual women. They were just kind of, you know, women who couldn't get married. And this was uh, your option. Now, the head 
nurse, uh, played by Vanessa Redgrave, is deeply in love with Father Grandier to the point of near madness. And so when the king and the clergy conspire against Father Grandier to take over this city, they're able to get um, this nun on their side and condemn Grandier to death. And ironically, uh, it's it's through this whole charade of uh, a possession, an exorcism uh, that culminates into a nun orgy, witchcraft allegations, a trial, and everything is a sham, everything is really OTT, except Father Grandier, who sticks to his guns and actually dies a martyr and finds his uh, purpose and true spirituality toward the end of it. So there's a lot going on in this film in that it is based on a true story, it is tackling a real event and real characters, albeit in kind of a fantastical Ken Russell-y way, um, but it has a lot of layers to it, and all of the characters are really well drawn uh, career making performances for Reed and Redgrave and just one of my personal favorites. This for me, Andrea, I'm with you. Like, I'm so hesitant to say I love this movie because it falls in a similar category to Seven Beauties for me, where, like, I think this is exactly what it set out to be. I think it is as close to perfect as movies get. I also think it's a waking nightmare. So it's like, how do I kind of reconcile those two? And, like, it's one of those movies I'm very cautious who I would recommend it to, but for those it's for, it is for. It's incredible. Now, have we all seen the uncut version? Have we got to get that out of the way? I think what I watched (laughs) was, yes, the uncut version. However, there are two scenes that are like super notorious that have never been restored, correct? The masturbation scene with the femur. uh, Yes. (laughs) And then the other one is the rape of Christ. The version I watched had neither of those scenes, but it did have, I know, scenes that were cut out of the initial theatrical release and I were cut definitely out of the U.S. 1971 release, because this is one of the most censored films of the 1970s, for sure. Um, they had, Russell had to do a lot to even get an X rating uh, in the U.K., and that included taking out a scene where uh, Sister Jeanne, played by Vanessa Redgrave after Oliver Reed has been killed, uh, masturbates with his b- charred femur. That was a bit too much for the <laughs> U.K. censors. Uh, and then a very, you know, one of the most, there's so many set pieces and so many famous climaxes for lack of a better term literally in this film but one of the greatest ones is the nuns like just dozens of nuns going insane during this exorcism and there was to have been a scene where they take the uh, a life-size statue of christ down from the cross and have sex with it so it's considered the the rape of christ and that scene I was also too much for UK censor. So my understanding is when this was restored in 2011, partially by the BFI and shown, I think at the London Film Festival or something related to the BFI, it's not been shown a lot theatrically. Everything had been restored that was cut with the exception of those two scenes, which I believe the femur scene is potentially lost or it was discovered, but I'm so confused by how this goes. But I do know that in North America, we have very few digital, like just, uh, physical media options of seeing this film the way it's meant to be seen. It is on Shutter, I believe, but I'm not sure in what version. Andrea, what version did you watch? Because I'm assuming you watched the version on Shudder. Uh, I did watch the version on Shudder, but the first time I saw it, it was, I mean, as unedited as I was able to find it, which is to say, you know, horror fans are going to bootleg that shit all around. This is like the unedited version of The Devils. It's kind of a white whale, especially for horror fans who are always, certainly in the pre-internet era, 
on the hunt for a good bootleg of something they're not supposed to see, something that is forbidden, something that is censored, something that is X-rated. And so, yeah, the uh, the devils kind of had that cachet in the horror world. Have you ever seen the femur scene? I don't think so. I, 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 I recall so. an implication of it. I almost forgot. Souvenir. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because the femur's delivered to her. In the version I right. saw, the femur's delivered to her on a plate. And then she looks at it very lustily. I'm going to use the word lustily a lot. (laughs) And then it cuts. But my understanding is the film, as it was meant to be with Ken Russell, was to the last sequence was to be her um, having masturbating with this. I have to say, I, I truly love this film. And I think to see it edited is still to enjoy it. Absolutely. And I, I do think the rape of Christ is is narratively significant to the film. And, you know, I think it really points to the fact that the orgy and the hysteria that was happening during the exorcism, that is right before it's all shown to be a sham with that whole thing with the box and there's nothing in here, jokes on you. And then they really flip out. You see, Father? <laughs> what sort of a trick have you played on us? Oh, Reverend Sir. What sort of a trick are you playing on us? I think they needed to push the envelope even further than a nut orgy, and hence the rape of Christ. And I think I think that's pretty pivotal. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know. They, it's not the gore hound in me. It's not that I really want to see titties and pubic hair. I just, I just feel like it fit the story. Which my understanding is they weren't allowed to show pubic hair. That was part of the censorship as well. Like there's a lot Lady of full frontal hair. nudity. Yeah, they could show male pubic hair, but not female pubic hair, which is insane. That's weird. Well, now it's the reverse. Yeah. I think what's interesting to me is how this got made at all in the first place. So Ken Russell, along with Oliver Reed, had made Women in Love, which was incredibly popular, got nominated for a bunch of Oscars and nominate, and just basically launched Ken Russell and Oliver Reed. And so Warner greenlights, OK, what's your next movie? We're going to do it. And did not read the script for this. And then once the first few dailies started coming back, we're like, oh, well, that's oh, on them. oh, I see. Well, we can't do this. <laughs> exactly. And then we're like, it, it's interesting because this is, as we've talked about a lot in the 1970s, we're right out of the era of Easy Rider where they it was kind of, we're going to throw everything to the wall, see what sticks, because obviously what we were doing before isn't working. And even this was a little too far out for what Warner was willing to do for a major studio. I mean, I think it's still an issue, right? There's a reason why Warner Brothers, to this day, has, has not issued this film on its home media. And Warner Brothers is a studio that, you know, they have their kind of A-list films that they put out on commercial discs. And then they even have like a B-list of like, print on demand called the Warner Archive. And even having that option, they will not do the devils. Now, this is where it gets really weird to me. In the 2021 film Space Jam, A New Legacy, which is Warner Brothers, you know, it's Bugs Bunny, there is a reference to the devils. There is the scene with one of the cut, one of the nuns that's cut from the film. Is a, I have not seen Space Jam. One of the nuns from the devils is in the crowd in a cameo in Space Jam, A New Legacy. And I do not understand how this has happened. I don't, (laughs) this is obviously a children's film. This is kind of like an even more perverse case of, you know, when Disney animators got really pissed off, and we've talked about this before in the cameo, and would put like a penis in The Little Mermaid. This is even more, and a more extreme form of that, where either animators and or the producers or the writer of Space Jam, I don't know who they are, were like, you know what? We're going to stick it to Warner Brothers and put a reference to 
to uh, the devils. I in, have an I have an answer in for our you. children. Sorry, Alicia. <laughs> As a parent, I can tell you exactly what they're doing. They're throwing in Easter eggs because they also have a reference to Mad Max Fury Road, mm-hmm. which of course you know the kids love Mad Max. Um, was it Dorf? Dorf is the name of the guy who plays yeah, the guitar yeah, that yeah. all the flames come out of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like this is that's definitely for the grown-ups who are like that ten in cheek. I I mean I agree with you to some extent. Like, but Mad Max Fury Road is such a um, you know a film that we've all seen. It was a major milestone. I, I mean, The Devils is a milestone in its own way, but this is a 50-year-old film that's been banned. It was banned in yeah. Finland until like two years ago or something. I think it's not the <laughs> it's same. Wild. It's not apples to apples to say there's a Mad Max Fury Road reference, which is very recent, and a cut scene from The Devils. <laughs> like That's like... <laughs> <laughs> That is fair. That is fair. It's I I mean it is iconic as as Andrew was saying. It's iconic Absolutely. in certain circles. It's the white whale for the horror movie lover, especially to find these restored versions. And it's something too that I can see people sort of whispering about. It's almost like um pulp novels in lesbian circles being like, "Hey, read this and let me know what you think about it." This feels like a movie that you would pass to someone and go, "Watch this and let me know what you think about it." To sort of gauge someone's level of taste and it's also a very intelligent intellectual movie like it's smart and one of the things I love so much about it is especially in both in the writing and in the performances Grandin is an anti-hero 100% but he's one of the few anti-heroes from the 70s I can watch this and go oh I'm watching someone genuinely trying to redeem himself genuinely and he screwed himself over so badly that it just can't flip back around for him and that's so rare in any film let alone film from the 70s Andrew, with why do you think in 1971 this was so universally hated? I mean, other than the fact that it's, it's partially obscene and some of the labs that were uh, handling the rushes for this film destroyed the footage, which was a huge problem in production because they labeled it as obscene. But even in like, you know, to your point, Becky, about it being intellectual, many of our greatest film critics in 71 called this, you know, horrible. Like Judith Christ called it a grand fiesta for sadists and perverts. This is one of the only zero star ratings from <laughs> Roger Ebert. Um, Pauline Kael wrote that it doesn't report hysteria. Uh, it, Russell markets it. Why do you think now, Andrea, it's 50 years later, such a milestone and such a masterpiece? And why wasn't it back then? Uh, well, I think I, I think there's an interesting point about the fact that uh, The Exorcist is only two years away from this. Truth. But this one caused all the trouble. And I think that uh, that it just points to the fact that for as racy and as blasphemous as The Exorcist is, it is still fundamentally reinforcing patriarchal ideals. We've got a feminist single mom who can't control the devil and her daughter with science, so here's the brave men of the Catholic Church to martyr themselves. Meanwhile, we've got the devils cutting up the Catholic Church, the monarchy, uh, political imperatives, cruelty in public displays, like there's a lot for the church to be pissed about, and it didn't land in a nice fairy tale bow. Uh, the way The Exorcist did. And, you know, maybe that's a bit simplistic. I don't think that there's a secret cabal of Vatican uh, puritanicals in Hollywood pulling the strings. But I do think that Hollywood is more conservative than it likes to admit. And uh, that's my theory. 
I guess also, and this goes back to an earlier point, like we did mention that in the U.S. this was cut even worse than in the U.K. because X ratings didn't really exist in the U.S. that way. So my understanding, too, is the version that, you know, U.S. critics would have seen in 1971 was pretty incoherent because of how much was cut out. So the story was really not intact. It wasn't just the rape of Christ and the femur scene. It was a lot of other things that have since been restored to the film. So I can maybe give I don't want to give too much credit to Roger Ebert. I, I mean, I love Roger Ebert, but like for giving it zero stars. But it, it should be said that what we know of the devils today, 50 years later, is not the devils in the U.S. of 1971. And that would have probably affected some people's, uh, I don't want, enjoyment's not the right word, <laughs> enjoyment of the devils. <laughs> no, today. exactly. You can't say I, I love I, it, I, I enjoy it. God, every time I watch this film, it grows more and more for me, my love for it. Um like even last night, I, I watched it earlier in the year to make sure it was uh, suitable for the podcast. And while it's absolutely not, it still got in. So <laughs> but I, I looked at my letterbox <laughs> review and I'd given it four and a half stars like six months ago. And I was like, let's just add that extra half star. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's at five currently. All right. Well, I do want to bring us into uh, Derek Jarman just for a oh, second, because he's yes. someone we've touched on briefly. And this is really the start of him becoming a collaborator with uh, Ken Russell, but also as a filmmaker in his own right who would go on to make a number of iconic films we've talked about. And he has one of the greatest uh, comments about Russell I think I've ever heard. He referred to him as the mad empress from some B-movie, waving his cane, his long hair flowing, wearing a smock and enormous rings on every finger. And if Derek Jarman, the queen, is calling you that much of a queen, you know there's some stuff going on. Jarman, I mean, he was the kind of art director of this film. um, And this predates a film like Jubilee, which is 1978. Uh, by, you know, seven years. Uh, this is filmed in 1970, actually. And yeah, the way, you know, Andrea, you're talking about those great constructions, the walled city of Ludan. He's the one who kind of came up with the idea of building it as a very modernist, but also very German expressionist set where it's very whitewashed brick. It's It absolutely would not have existed in the 17th century when this film takes place. And it is so effective. It's so effective. Um, I think a film like I was thinking about Julie Taymor's Titus really takes a lot from the Mm -hmm. set design of this as well as I know, and we're going to talk about Polanski in a minute, but um, the last shot of this film of the devils, Polanski actually quotes in the pianist for his last shot. Jarman's like notion of design is just, I think a lot of what makes this film so entrancing to me because you know, the costumes are kind of period specific, but then having this modern setting makes it feel um, like this could be any time. And I, I wish I could say that in 2021, this film isn't relatable, but it is because of things like, I don't know, the, the storming of the White House and things like I, it just does actually make a lot of sense with the idea of hysteria and political fervent and um, and a plague. They're a plague. in the middle yeah, of the a plague. The film opens in, with plague scenes. The opening of the film is the most Jarman I've seen. Like there's, you know, real you really see films like Caravaggio kind of have its DNA in this opening scene of um, where you have the, the king kind of acting out in this very. Yeah, it's yeah, the like a Botticelli painting basically. It's it's absolutely beautiful. But um yeah, it's pure German and I didn't know this the first time I saw it that it was German and now it all kind of makes sense. Do we want to talk about Vanessa Redgrave at all? What a gal. What a sport. <laughs> what a good sport. Yeah, I couldn't I have been comfortable. Do you guys have any info on how she actually achieved that short of just like 
hurting herself badly. She's got a prosthetic in there that pushes herself over. Like a, pl- a plastic hump. Yeah. She is bordering on parody and camp in this role, and I yeah. am here for it. That sensual desires. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's such a legitimate uh, ire in her character and how she sees Grandier philandering about and getting away with it while she is behind these literal bars of the sisterhood and like why should she hate herself for her wet dreams when she sees um when he gets to indulge not only in the pleasures of the flesh but like a romantic affair and a marriage it's that patriarchal double standard in the catholic church and so she in some ways works the system to get some revenge and sometimes i'm cheering for her do you know why most of us are here because you love our lord jesus christ and wish to serve him Most of the nuns here are noble women who have embraced the monastic life because there was not enough money at home to provide them with dowries. <laughs> or they were unmarriageable because ugly, a burden to the family. I also believe her orgasms, which I've got to say, in film, it's a very difficult thing to be like, yep, quality orgasm, I get it. But I think this also brings us back to a talking point that's been significant throughout most of season two, will probably be in season three. This also makes women's pleasure both fascinating and sure. scary. I mean, as it would have been in the 17th century, as it is in 2021, <laughs> apparently, in some circles. Um, you know, you read something like the Bible, not that I've read it recently, and like, you know, words like ecstasy, like it's such, we're always just on the edge of where the Bible is slightly pornographic in certain parts. And I think this film really draws upon that and really understands religious ecstasy is just hinging on sexual ecstasy. And it, it only a Catholic like Ken Russell, which I don't know if we've said that he is a devout, was a devout Catholic. Um, this is one of his only political films. Who transitioned later in life, too. Yeah, he he, he committed himself yeah, later in yeah, life he's as a, well. Yeah, that's true. Which is just um, wild. Yeah. Prior to making this film. I mean, this is so interesting because this could only come from someone's brain who knows that kind of ideology and understands those kinds of stories and understands those kinds of visuals as well. There's so many references to art history in this film in terms of how it's set up in its tableaus because that is so much of one of the earliest experiences of, you know, Catholic visuals was through painting, obviously, and through illuminated manuscripts. And uh, that's also, I think, why this film looks so radical. It's so radical for 71 and still radical in 2021. Nothing, no film has looked like this. As much as I'm quoting like Julie Taymor and Titus and a few others, even something like The Conformist, I think, has a lot of references to this film. Nothing has ever looked this good. But it's also the casting of oh, Reed. So like amazing. Reed has those incredible blue eyes. I mean, people have talked about this being his greatest performance, and I gotta say, it might be his greatest. I mean, it's an embarrassment of riches because he has a lot of great performances. So I mean, yes, this is his yeah. greatest, but that isn't to say that he like, doesn't have a dozen other. Everything else is an amazing performances. <laughs> He's also the best part of many films that are not worth watching, sure. like Burnt yeah. Offerings, right? So it's like you got that kind of stuff going on too. But his final performance. So this is the thing about Ken Russell that we have to remember is that he was totally fine endangering people to be able to get the shot. So in the last bit of the film when he is burned, when Oliver Reed is burned at the stake, Ken Russell was literally still throwing gasoline on the fire to get it go bigger and the wind was starting to change and he actually started to burn. So he was like, okay, I better go faster so they can get the shot so they can put me out. Like, that's freaking Look, we've wild We've never said that this podcast episode was about two 
nice people who make films. <laughs> and we'll get more into this conversation with the that next is film. Fair. But yeah, no, he's a notorious asshole. Nice yeah. guy. The podcast. He died a notorious abusive yeah. asshole. Um, there's some really great interviews kind of, I guess, maybe in, upon the 40th anniversary of this film. So just about a year before he died. He died in 2012. And he suffered dementia um, late in life. And so a lot of these interviews are very kind of tough to read because he will claim he remembers nothing about the devils and then, you know, recite something very interesting, meaning he clearly does. But I mean, even in these interviews, he's slightly abusive and not a good person, but I mean, a genius. And also eclectic. So we should also point out this is the same Mm -hmm. year as the Twiggy vehicle, The Boyfriend, which he also directed, which has been lost to time, but is weirdly very charming. There's no scene of masturbating with a charred femur in (laughs) The Boyfriend. (laughs) He got it out of his system. No, that would be The Bone Friend. That's a different thing. (laughs) All right. And on that note, I feel like we should head into our next film. So when we come back, we're going to be looking at quite possibly one of the best adaptations of Shakespeare on film that unfortunately has been obscured by a bunch of controversy. That's coming up after the break. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you think about Playboy in the 70s, you probably don't think about prestige Shakespeare adaptations. I mean, most people think of 77's Caligula and Penthouse when they think of nudie magazine ventures into film. But one of the most fascinating things about filmmaking in the early 70s is that it became the Wild West. After Easy Rider in 69, no one knew what was going to be a hit and who was going to produce it. And a hit equals cash. So when Playboy collaborated with Columbia Pictures to fund a post-Rosemary's Baby Roman Polanski to make a film adaptation of Macbeth... It is important to note that between Rosemary and Macbeth is when Sharon Tate was murdered. However, it is before Polanski was convicted of assaulting Samantha Gailey. 
We decided that if we were going to discuss this film at all, it was important to acknowledge that it's a key intersection of film history. However, we recognize Polanski as being an accused and convicted serial assaulter. Now, before we talk about the film itself, Alicia, although this is considered the definitive version of it, and I think it is too, before the bar was an Orson Welles version, is that correct? For Macbeth? I mean, the Orson Welles version, which is from the 50s, is good i mean it's you know but it was never nothing had ever really been visualized um this way before for the story of macbeth in terms of early examples of macbeth though there are i believe and i forgot to look this up but i do remember seeing the witches scene very early in the 1910s um depicted where just that particular passage of macbeth was probably the most famous and many companies internationally, Italian companies, French companies, American companies, would often do the opening sequence, the first um, act one, scene one of Macbeth with the witches, which is why it's so important for this particular topic on witchcraft. Yeah, nothing had really been able to get into the psychology of Macbeth and its visuals the way that Polanski did in 1971. And you know, this is a play that I think Laurence Olivier tried to do Macbeth. He did, of course, a lot on stage and his version from the 1950s, uh, his intended film version failed. But he's someone who really pointed out that Macbeth is one of the most well-rounded and concise of the major tragedies, of Shakespeare's major tragedies. Um, and it's the one that has the most specific visuals. If you think about like other Shakespeare, something like, you know, a common direction would be like, you know, is slain <laughs> like or exit stage i mean the i guess one notable exception is of course like the winter's tale with uh, antigonus being you know ex- ex- exit pursued by bear is a little more specific yeah. but Macbeth yes. is different in that it has with the witch's speeches you know double double toil and trouble like all of these kinds of eye of newt all it is is just throwing at us visuals that you know don't necessarily need to be explained the way they do in other plays. And I think Polanski is able to take those visuals, take the descriptions of the landscape, which are so specific in Macbeth in a way that they're not in other plays um, in terms of, you know, the, the Scottish the, the Scottish uh, landscape. And he rolls with it. And he gives us a psychological visual adaptation of Shakespeare that I think had not been attempted up to this point. It was much more, there were always just kind of filmed theater adaptations up to this point and does it in a way that gets at the tone of Shakespeare and gets at the sort of really intrinsic and existential dread of Shakespeare in a way that no other adaptation had. And you know, who better to do this than an absolute monster? <laughs> yes, totally fair. Um, and we should also point out that it is, in the reviews, it is intrinsically linked to the murder of Sharon Tate and the fact that it is dealing with, it also has one of the most brutal scenes of murdering a woman and her child, which happens in the original production, but it's one of the most uh, brutal scenes of that happening in anything. And it's it's still really disturbing to watch. It's a it's a tough scene. So when the critics were talking about this, that's really all they want to talk uh, wanted to talk about, leaving out that he's doing some really interesting things with Shakespeare that help modern audiences see and understand it and visualize it, uh, really cutting down on the language. The play itself is like five hours long, but this is like a nice tight 
two hours, mm-hmm. about there, a little less. Um, and it makes it easy to understand because he replaces a lot of the dialogue with visuals. Yeah, I mean, so much of Shakespeare and, and Macbeth especially are, you know, uh, soliloquies, right? Where the audience hears them, but they're meant to be insular and they're meant to be sort of in the character's head. And he doesn't, and that's always posed a challenge for all film directors adapting Shakespeare. And he doesn't really shy away from it. He does the full soliloquies and the way he has it, you know, we're so much in Macbeth's head to the extent that I think you understand um, why he's doing, why he's behaving this way. He's not a major villain in this film. He really is contorted and being kind of tortured. And when hearing that and like seeing his actions, it makes so much sense. Is this a dagger which I see before me? The handle toward my hand. Now, Andrea, I watched this one in high school. Was this the version you watched in high school as well? Don't remember. I definitely thought about high school watching this. I remember watching Boz Luhrmann's uh, Romeo and Juliet in high school. That was the big Shakespeare film adaptation. But I I remember the first time I saw this film, I was struck by, you know, how unfair it is that you study it in high school and it's such a slog because of the language. And you grow up thinking that Shakespeare is all like, you know, stodgy and stuffy and not bloody and action-packed, but this version of Macbeth, uh, Titus that you mentioned a little bit earlier, (laughs) Shakespeare is bloody as fuck, and I love me an adaptation that really gets in there. This uh, this film makes me feel things. It's, um, you know, a lot of the violence is, is, is just a very brief moment, really indelible images that burn themselves into your mind, like uh, Lady Macbeth just lying on the floor with a blanket thrown yeah. over her. I felt sick. Yeah, and even yeah. I think, you know, one of the, my favorite passages is when um, Macbeth can picture the ghost of Banquo and Fleance. And I don't think Fleance has actually been killed, but he thinks he has, that he's, you know, led to the murder of a child and he sees them sitting at the table and um, no one else sees them, obviously, because he's hallucinating. But the way Polanski stages it where Banquo is almost um, decaying in certain stages at the table. It's not just a bloody ghost. He's kind of bloody at first and he gets bloodier. Then he turns into a corpse. It's just like, oh my God, <laughs> I couldn't even shake it. I felt like I couldn't <laughs> I watch these both back to back. So I was like, it got a little bit busy with work week. So I it was like, okay, I got to watch Macbeth, got through Macbeth. I'm like, okay, let's start the devils. And it was like, okay, I'm in a real <laughs> mood <laughs> like after these two films. But uh, yeah, they're, they're really, really haunting. It reminded me a lot of some of the things that really scare me in Repulsion, the Catherine Deneuve film that um, Polanski makes in the 60s before Rosemary's Baby. And it's just even that film, too, and especially around the rabbit, I can't get that out of my head. And I feel like Macbeth is just that rabbit sequence like over and over and over again. The other thing that they do here that hadn't really been seen in Shakespeare. And Shakespeare can be futzed with in many ways. Like, let's put much ado about nothing in a Western. You know, that's what we're going to do. But this did something that they hadn't done before, where up until this point, um, Lady Macbeth and uh, Macbeth were played as older characters who were tired. They were ready for their turn. That's not what this is. These are two young, incredibly sexy actors uh, who are thirsty and they're, and then you see, oh, we got a little too ahead of ourselves and started killing people and didn't realize what the repercussions were going to be. And it just makes it fresher and easier to access. Absolutely. It modernizes it. It uh, breathes new life into it. And I also really liked the way the witches were depicted. Oh, yeah. In this. You know, they have that monstrous wardiness, but also that really seductive youth. Uh, you know, the coven is... 
they're naked and they're dirty. So it's just, it, it's, it's titillating, but also disgusting at the same yeah. time. By the pricking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes. <laughs> How now, you secret black and midnight hags? And I appreciate the fact that it seems like pains were taken to show that Macbeth drove himself crazy. Lady Macbeth drove herself crazy through their actions. The witches merely held up a reflection of their ambition. And I felt like in that entire nightmare sequence, the, the way he goes to them, the way he talks to them, they're like, have it. You know, these women aren't being exploited um, and they didn't corrupt that's him. such a good point. I think that's true of the devils too with the nuns when they're in their major, you know, throes of passion and during the exorcism and the orgy, it's not really about them so much as holding the mirror up to the hypocrisy around them that has created the situation. Um, you know, there's a lot of paintings of the witches throughout Macbeth and, and, you know, illustrations and engravings, that kind of thing. But the way that Polanski staged this in this little cave, it's so cramped. It's so claustrophobic. It really feels, and I can't, I have never confirmed this, that it was actually filmed with natural candlelight. It is stellar. I mean, we get our three witches in the beginning, but then, you know, I think that scene that you're referencing, Andrea, with, I want to say there's like a hundred witches in that little cave and we have, you know, maybe a hundred nuns going insane. There are probably in, in these two films, a combined body, like nudity count of 250 people. This might be the most nudity we've seen <laughs> on this podcast. It's not romanticized. It really is. Um, and keep in mind, this is produced by Playboy, but it's not romanticized. When you have Francisca Annis playing Lady Macbeth, which when she's doing the sleepwalking scene, super famous, the choice, Plansky makes the choice of depicting her nude, which is just realistic. That's how it would have been. It's not eroticized. I mean, she's gorgeous and it's, it, you know, it's a gorgeous body on screen. But it is in keeping with the tone of the film. It's in keeping with the historical setting. It doesn't feel like pornography. And I think that that's also why it's so incredibly effective. Because I don't know how many theatrical productions have depicted that scene with an all-nude actress. I don't... Maybe there's a lot. I'm not super well informed on my theatrical Shakespeare adaptations. He's also very much adding a 70s style of acting to this, which hadn't really been applied to Shakespeare before, because before you have the full arm out and I'm acting to the back of the room even when I'm on film. And you don't have that in this. Here it's like very dry, very stated, very clear. And Alicia, how did uh, they find the actor for this? Because this is a Macbeth that hadn't shown up before. He was not a Shakespeare actor. What happened Yeah, here? so we're talking about John Finch, who I think if people haven't seen Macbeth, might recognize him from Hitchcock's Frenzy. Um, a Hitchcock, One of my favorite Hitchcocks. It's so good. It's from the 70s. Um, and he met Polanski on an airplane. <laughs> so that's how he got Macbeth, um, which I do know from the producer of Macbeth. I was watching some interviews they've given and some of the other actors, they were very concerned with this pretty boy um, being cast as Macbeth. And then within the first like take, they were like, oh my God, <laughs> like, okay, all fears aside, this is, uh, this man is incredible. He really was kind of an actor. He'd done theater, but he hadn't done Shakespeare. But he was coming off of um, two Hammer horror films that both came out in 1970, uh, The Vampire Lovers, which came up on our last episode um, around Daughters of Darkness, and The Horror of Frankenstein. So I kind of get where Polanski was maybe coming from. And I think Polanski had seen both of those films or possibly something prior that um, John Finch had been in. And it just, I guess it kind of clicked where there was a modern 
a modernist to his acting, but then also this ability to be very gothic and this ability to be very, I mean, you know, vampire lovers and horror Frankenstein are a little bit campy. And I think that works in Macbeth. And I'm not saying he's campy in Macbeth. He's not, but he's well-rounded. If the play is incredibly well-rounded and very action-packed, right? This is probably the bloodiest and most action-packed of the um, Shakespeare plays, it makes sense to get someone who's done that kind of grand gounol, like theatrical death scenes and sword play and, and things like that. That would be my guess. But um, he went on to pretty great career success because of this. But I think when you read biographies on him, really, it is this film and Frenzy that he's most well known for. The Playboy stuff, like we talked about, there's a lot of nudity, but it's not sexualized, but it's produced by Playboy. So they got involved with this production because the um, funding fell through. So they came up with an extra $100,000 to fill up everything. Now, Polanski has a long history with uh, Hugh Hefner and especially with uh, Victor Lowndes, yeah. who up until a point was, I mean, he's a fascinating, uh, not a good human being, but a fascinating human being, um, who up until this point was really Hugh Hefner's not only right, right-hand man, but he basically ran the entire European wing of Playboy. For people who don't know, Playboy used to have resorts. They used to have casinos. Like, they were like a brand. And so Victor Lowndes was running all of that. So he was actually with Polanski on the night when uh, Sharon Tate was murdered and they got the phone call, et cetera. But uh, he he stepped in to help his buddy Polanski, like, okay, yeah, Playboy can get the funding. He talked uh, Hafner into it. And then Polanski proceeded to go uh, $600,000 over budget and then proceed to mock them for this. So this kind of destroyed their relationship, so much so that uh, Lowndes returned a life-size golden penis that Polanski had modeled for in quote-unquote happier days and said to him, I'm sure you'll have no difficulty finding some friend you can shove it up. So, you know, obviously this relationship did not go well, but this is not the last Playboy venture. They went on to produce a number of other films that had nothing to do with the Playboy brand. They were just produced by Playboy. It's pretty interesting. And then they stopped and just started doing exactly what you would think they would do. It still doesn't explain (laughs) why of all films to start with. Even if they were like, no, we got to get into a Shakespeare adaptation, why it would be Macbeth, I still don't understand. It was what Polanski wanted, right? I think think there is something on record of him being laid, something that I always wanted to do. And the success of Rosemary's Baby meant that I could do whatever I want. And, you know, indeed, not not, not to uh, leverage his tragedy, but I I think that had something to do with it as well. I could do whatever I wanted. I could spend this money. Um, People were thirsty for my pain. And uh, so I gave it to them in a story that would showcase it. Yeah. He was prepping another movie before this, and that movie got completely shelved because obviously he just couldn't work it on it anymore. But I think there is something about the appeal of making Shakespeare your first thing because there's an automatic prestige of like, we're making Shakespeare. Yeah. And so they can do that, right? And they've always been the classiest of the brands, more than Penthouse, more than Hustler. They've always been like, we're for the we're the thinking men's magazine. You read us for the articles, really. Yeah, right? if Hustler were to produce a Shakespeare adaptation, it probably would have been like oh, I don't know, like much ado about nothing or something like not <laughs> as complicated as this. But there'd be, there'd be as you sure, like it. Sure, like, like as you like it, ways. as yes. produced by Hustler. <laughs> That's actually way better than much ado. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, it's hard to watch this film and not take out the biography on Polanski. I do, uh, there's a documentary on the making of this film that's incredible just 
how much of the behind the scenes was filmed. So watching a lot of the really large set pieces, um, specifically there's incredible footage of the sequence where um, Burnham Wood comes to Dunsandane Hill. I don't think I said that right. Dunsandane. No, Dun- Dunsandane? Dunsandane. Dunsandane Hill. It's all right. You're American. You'll never be able to pronounce it properly. It's true. I'm a Scottish (laughs) descent, but that is true. Um, And it's, you know, the scene where everyone is carrying the trees, this giant battle uh, scene, you know, filmed in this huge, like, landscape. And they really only had one one chance to do it because they had to do it as the sun was rising. And seeing that behind-the-scenes footage of, you know, Polanski, of all of his producer, of the screenwriter, of the cinematographer, and this film's cinematography is stunning. And then all these extras dressed in modern attire carrying trees, like, and he's, like, someone over a megaphone yelling, like, don't rush with the trees! <laughs> like, just, like, slow it down! Like, it's <laughs> so interesting seeing what all went into this film. Um, and, you know, he pulls it off impeccably now it was a huge failure failure like huge box office failure um and critical failure for sure and then almost really instantly becomes kind of rehabilitated within a decade i would say um i watched this in high school i can't believe they showed us this in high school i don't think high schools would show this they should but i don't think they would uh show this to kids Um, in our current school system. Can we talk about that fight scene at the end? Andrea, what is your thought on this? I love it. Uh, I love how clumsy and clunky those tin cans were because I feel like they must be. But usually in movies, everybody's moving so freely and gracefully in 300, but these guys are like clink, clink, (laughs) clink. And it didn't feel, it didn't feel orchestrated. It didn't feel choreographed. I would not be surprised to learn that it wasn't. And I enjoyed that. I was into that fight even though I knew who was you gonna know win. What? It is super choreographed because they actually got William Hobbs who was like the star fight director from the National Theatre of London so he had history on staging these exact fights um, from Macbeth um, among many other Shakespeare plays and that was kind of his signature was to make it look like it wasn't choreographed is my understanding but then make it but have it be very realistic and the sound design like you're saying the clink 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 that's also just a real compliment to the sound design um, and the post you know the post sound effects that they would have found I mean there's just so much pedigree to this film because it's also co-scripted by Kenneth Tynan who was you know um, the artist he's the credit as the artistic director and co-screenwriter of the film but he was a really famous English theater critic um, and so there's a lot of like theater pedigree and yet Polanski's what's instilling the cinematic into it because to me this film what distinguishes it from so many other Shakespeare adaptations is how cinematic it is, even with those clunky fight scenes. It doesn't feel stagey. No. It doesn't. The set is wonderful, like everything. I think one of the things that's fascinating to me about that scene is that um, it's a very much a different world where you're just watching two guys who could be king go at it. And they're, theoretically, there's two separate sides and groups of people that should have a vested interest in this. But no one seems to be in it. They're just like, yeah, yeah, whoever wins is our king. That's fine. We'll just I mean, go aren't we that. kind of there today politically? And- <laughs> Totally. Do you remember the guy? Do you remember the guy who tries to stop the deserters? Yeah. Yes. He doesn't get a fucking word in edgewise before he stands there and being like, uh, I'm supposed to stop you. Nope. Not today. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, that's a great, Brilliant. that's an incredible kill shot. I remembered the question I have. All right, so we talked about how this was critically panned at the time. Now, my question is, regardless of what happened with Sharon Tate, the next film he made, because Rome, Rosemary's Baby is so good, and even now is so iconic, whatever he made next, people were going to hate. I think you're right, but I think anyone would have hated this just because of how unusual it was, because it wasn't what they expected from a Shakespeare adaptation. And I think similar to how we're talking about the devils, it was too dark. Like that scene, Andrea, we were talking about where Lady Macbeth's body is just covered with a tarp, basically. And, um, you know, all of that is not what they wanted. They wanted the grandiose and in Shakespeare, and, and that's not what Polanski's giving you. So I think even if it wasn't Polanski, but we had this exact film directed by someone else who didn't have these headlines surrounding their name, I think it still would have been hated. I also think the Playboy moniker on it is probably really affected how it could be marketed. And um, people who were excited for a Playboy version of Macbeth probably were quite upset and should have gone to see uh, Hustlers uh, as you like it (laughs) in the next cinema. As we talk about Polanski, I mean, and I talk about Rosemary's Baby, Alicia, you brought up a great point that it seems like there's some movies we're allowed to talk about and praise, and there's other movies like Macbeth that are just kind of off the table. Yeah, I think just from my perspective as a curator, um, someone who's booking, you know, films to show in rep houses as events, and um, even as, you know, someone who would even write about film, as Andrea does as well, it has struck me that with Polanski as well as a few other um, filmmakers, Woody Allen especially, that there's this like pantheon of films in Polanski's career you're allowed to like, you're allowed to still show theatrically, like Rosemary's Baby um, we show frequently in Hollywood Suite and why wouldn't we? Um, It's a film that routinely gets programmed for Mother's Day in in rep houses um, which is, you know, clever and it's, it's very much in the Criterion collection as is Macbeth. But um, as soon as you start talking about films like Macbeth or even future Polanski's, and, you know, I mean, I don't think anyone's rushing out to show The Ninth Gate or something like that, but um, it's almost like you're not allowed to. We've we've chosen which Polanski's are allowed, and they all predate the assaults that he is convicted of, as well as Sharon Tate and the LaBianca murders. So, you know, Rosemary's Baby's okay, Repulsion, Cul-de-sac. Of course, we're going to say that Knife in the Water, which, my God, is a masterpiece, is important and in, in, in such a, you know, part of film history. But then anything after, it's like, oh, well, that's, that's a, you can't go there because, you know, he's, he's a bad man. And we do that with Woody Allen, except there is no distinction between when he was a bad man and a good man. He's just always been a bad man. Um, and I'm just not really comfortable with that. So it's kind of a, like a hard decision to choose Macbeth for this podcast episode because I know some it will upset a lot of people that feel we should just erase Polanski's existence and Polanski's films. Um, but those same people might be much more comfortable talking about Rosemary's Baby than Macbeth. And I just don't think we can pick and choose that way. I don't know. Andrea, what do you, what is, you know, as somebody who writes on horror, what perspective do you have on this with Polanski specifically? Oh, I think you're absolutely bang on, first of all, that, that we talk about Rosemary's Baby in a very different way that we talk about his other films. Indeed, Macbeth is weird in that it's a Shakespeare and it's a horror film and it's a Playboy film, but like it, just, it doesn't come up a lot. And if it does, it does kind of have that sneery snootiness, whereas Rosemary's Baby, it's like, well, it's just a really good film. And it kind of gets that pass. And uh, and I think that's a really great observation, especially given um, the continuing relevance of 
quote unquote cancel culture and we have somebody who has been convicted but has has fled and has not done their time. And so it feels like unfinished business. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't feel like, and it feels the same way for Woody Allen and it feels the same way for Victor Solo yeah. who comes out uh, in, in, in horror discourse to this day. And so there have been times where, like, for example, Rue Morgue every morning does a, on this day in horror history, social media post. Mm -hmm. And we'll say that this came out or this person was born or this person died. And for the longest time, the staff member who was in charge of doing that would always wish Roman Polanski a happy birthday on his birthday. Mm -hmm. And I had to kind of put the kibosh on that, that, you know, if we are gonna separate the art from the artist and horror has its auteurs and its storytellers and its people that we elevate and venerate as like, you know, yeah, like the word of God brought to us uh, through these people. I, I'm i not comfortable with Polanski being there, but I am comfortable talking about his art as long as I also disclose yeah. that I believe him absolutely to be a monster. Yeah, there's some stuff too that I, I think it's difficult to erase Rosemary's Baby because it features one of the greatest performance of someone who I would technically consider a feminist icon, which is Mina Farrow. You know, and I get, I think Macbeth gets it, really harshly because of that um, already brought up on the podcast, the idea that there is a murder that's very much in the play and staged, you know, in the play visually as a murder of a, a, a young mother and, and the child. But I mean, Rosemary's Baby is about a pregnant woman. And the thing about Macbeth is it's there on paper. It's Shakespeare. And so sure, maybe he was attracted to Macbeth because it, I don't think so. Though. I don't think he was attracted to Macbeth because there's a scene of a, a very brief scene of a woman being murdered and a mother. I really think it's more the overall story of Macbeth that attracted him. So I get why some people, especially critics at the time, were like, this is just all about his biography. And there's a lot of very, I think, apophical. I don't think I said that right. Apophical? Apophical? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Close enough. Stories yeah, yeah. <laughs> where, you know, on set when someone was con exercising concern about how bloody this was, that, you know, someone in Plansky would say, like, well, you have no idea how bloody, you know, my Christmas two years w ago was. I think the murders were at Christmas. I can't remember. But I don't think that happened. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's a lot of weird stories where, like, people who are very unsighted are like, well, one time you told me this on the set of Macbeth. And it's just like, I don't know, really? Like, this has all just become this word of mouth bullshit where and I'm not defending him but I'm just kind of like obviously critics knew that they could get a lot more readers writing about the Tate LaBianca murders while reviewing Macbeth than they would have if they were reviewing Joe Blow's version of Much Ado About Nothing that's really boring. Macbeth seems very all of a sudden in the last 10 years recurrent and very popular again like I know in 2015 there's the version with uh, Michael Fassbender and Marion Cotillard so really taking a page out of the Polanski book where it's like you know cast exceptionally attractive people unlike how the characters are written in Shakespeare and to me that version is very disappointing although I really would like to revisit it and so I'd be interested if someone including listeners uh, have a defense of it and then this year, you know, this will be this podcast is coming out in October and, and by late September, uh, the Cohen. It's, well, it's not the Cohen brothers. It's just Joel Cohen's version of Macbeth will be opening the New York Film Festival, which is starring, of course, Francis McDormand and Denzel Washington. So we are getting we're getting Macbeth at a higher rate than we are other Shakespeare adaptations in the 21st century, which I think is interesting. Do you think that's tied, Andrea, to horror? Do you think like 
I'm I don't know. I I don't know. I think you've seen the 2015 version, but like recent Macbeths, is it is it really just the witches that we want to see like today? Is it that scene? Like I know that that's what I'm always looking forward to most in like recent adaptations. It's tough to say. I feel like the pandemic, like usually you have the benefit of 2020 hindsight as you look back and you say, this is going on in the world and the movies that came out now are reflecting these anxieties and this and this and that. But these movies that were started before the pandemic or that are ignoring the pandemic and are essentially, you know, perhaps ignoring our needs living through this pandemic, you know, like it's not, um, it doesn't quite make sense to me just yet. So uh, I'm not sure what to think. I think time will tell. Yeah, totally fair. All right. I think that's where we should wrap it up for today. So Alicia Fletcher, thank you for tackling this. I know this was a tough one. It's always a pleasure to have you. Thank you. you. I just felt bad forcing both of you to watch this. (laughs) I mean, I don't feel bad at forcing anyone to watch The Devils. And I'm just very grateful to both Andrea and Becky for being um, lovers of that film as well. I was thinking about like, I think when um, I was watching it this last time, I realized the line that came into my head at a certain point when the orgy is happening was just that escalated fast. And I'm like, that is the best tagline to the devil. <laughs> you can, well, that escalated fast. <laughs> so thank you. I, I love getting to talk about <laughs> difficult films. And uh, definitely we have our email address in the intro and the outro for listeners who have questions or concerns or just want to engage a little bit more in this conversation. Um, we will definitely answer your your emails or you could do it on social media too if you are polite and kind. <laughs> At Hollywood Suite. That's the tag across the board. Uh, Andrea, thank you so much once again for joining us. Now, we're in October, and I know you have a very big uh, Vogue-style September issue coming out. This is your October issue. Yeah, it's a September-October issue, so so it's full of... Uh, necessary Halloween viewing, in my opinion, but I would count the Devils and Macbeth among them. So uh, so watch the movies, read the mag, follow along, and happy Halloween. How do people find you on the social medias? I am on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Pretty easy to find there, but you also definitely want to follow my Pomeranian Dante, who yes. can be found on Instagram at Dante of the Dead. I've got a lot of Halloween costumes for him. I was just going to ask if Dante has a devil's costume. <laughs> if he had, like, maybe like he could dress up as uh, Philippe with the blue lipstick and the little courtesan. I don't know. I'm just, yeah, just riffing. He's got <laughs> bat wings. He's got a skeleton shirt. He's got a Chucky costume. But I'll put the devil on. Uh, he can be a devil. Yeah, a little nun, a little yeah. Sister Jeanne. With a, Shouldn't oh be my hard God. to put a little oh hunchback back on Andrea, him. Andrea, get a black <laughs> bone. Get the femur. <laughs> Like the oh, <laughs> have him gnawing yeah. on it. <laughs> this is so twisted. All right, I'm calling okay. it. Thank you <laughs> once again. Thank you so much, listeners, for joining us. Happy Halloween to you all. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Want to email the podcast? You can do so at podcast at hollywoodsuite.ca. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial-free, Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cameron Maitland, and featured Alicia Fletcher and Andrea Subasetti as guests. Supervising producer is Ryan Maines. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Creative consultant is Emily Gagne. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next week. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.